This is Interplay, Conversations in Music, with your host, Michael Shapiro. Today, I have a friend of many, many years. I think we've known each other something like 25, 30 years, John Matt Sherry. It's a long time. Long time. Our hair has changed. Your hair has remained the same. I've lost mine. But, you know, I will say one thing about hair. I just had this conversation with Stephen Estelos, who has magnificent hair and is in our age group, kind of. And he was making fun of me. I said, you know, I get up in the morning, I don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> so, John, who has still a beautiful, full head of hair, I have read all of your books and most of your articles over the years. But I can say I, I have all of your books and I've read them all, and we've been friends a long time. So this is a bit of a um, talking, preaching to the choir, but there are people who are watching this who may not know you as a writer of what I call social history. I mean, I know you as a musician, as a friend, as a mentor, and as someone I've discussed a lot of this for many, many years. We actually met, I think, through John Waxman when I was music consultant with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Exactly. When it first opened in the early 90s. And I, with the National Symphony uh, Players put on concerts of the music of the Teretz, Teretzin composer, Theresienstadt composers, such as Ullmann and Krasa and Schulhoff. And, so, and Schulhoff was not in Teretzin, but those composers who were murdered by Hitler and his um, helpers, and also the emigres, Korngold, Castelnuovo Tedesco, Toch, etc., of whom we will shall speak. And we met then, and we share a lot of the same ideals and thoughts. Your new book is called The War on Music, Reclaiming the 20th Century. And it really dovetails with the work you did uh, in Europe, uh, your Flamen recording of Schulhoff, which is extraordinary. Your Weil recording, the Dreigroschen Opera, Three Penny Opera, so many other things. Your Korngold recording of the, of the opera that took a while for it to come back. And is it back? We have a lot to talk about. And we have a, a lot to talk about in that we shared a lot of people together in our life, um, like Karl Bamberger and others who fled the Nazis in 38, and whose lives were very much turned around. So first, John, your social history of the war on music. Yes. It, is a social, it is a social history. It goes through many chapters of talking about the background of, of Brahms and Wagner, Schoenberg's situation, film music, why certain music is cast aside, why certain things get played and certain things do not mm -hmm. at, at celebratory events. So you can't say it in one, one sentence or one paragraph, but why this book? Um, well, uh, you're right. I can't say it in one paragraph, but, but, I, but I, I tweeted... Um, you know, the summary of the book can be put into three words, play the music. That's all. Because unlike every other art form or the things we call art, music is invisible. And it has, because of that thing that may, that's invisible, um, it has certain very specific and unique aspects, which makes it different from visual art, from poetry, from books. Um, because it's invisible, 
Um, and it latches on to visible things. It could be a company, a ballet, or a, or a film. Um, it it is dangerous because it controls behavior. You see, uh -huh. uh, uh, and anybody listening to this, what does that mean? Well, because you know that you certain music in church or synagogue makes you feel closer to God. Um, music in a disco makes you presumably want to shake your booty uh, music. Uh, certain music was considered the devil's music because it made you behave in ways that were antisocial. Um, and there's music that leads you to war and makes you think that war is a good idea. So music is, is, has a control uh, aspect to it. And as I say, in Confucius's time in China, music was considered part of public administration, mm -hmm. not art because it controlled how people behave. Plato writes about this and everybody knows that, you know, I, I quote in the book, uh, Napoleon, who talks about how music can uplift a society much more than any speech. Okay, so music is invisible. Therefore, it has no borders. You can lock up people behind a wall in a ghetto, you can lock up slaves in the slave quarters. But if their music can come out of it, it has a way of permeating the world. And since we humans are mimics, we are imperfect mimics. So when we hear it, if we like it, we repeat it, or we want to hear it again. However, one way you can control music is not to play it, right? So if you don't hear it, and you just tell people it's bad, they start to think, I guess it must be bad. And, and so that's harder to do in the 21st century, but it was easier to do in the 20th century. Now, um, starting with World War One, and the reason why the book is called The War on Music, it really focuses on three global wars, one, two, and cold. Um, in World War One, music was used uh, as an example of cultural superiority. The Germans were proud of their German culture. You know, Wagner writes about that at the end of Meisterzinger, but by the but by the 1914 and the run-up to World War I, the Germans were the Germans and the Italians wrote opera. And you know, each country used classical music as part of who they were. And Schoenberg famously said that he joined the Austrian army in World War I to, um, to destroy the kitschmongers in Paris. And by kitschmongers, he was referring to Ravel and even Stravinsky, right? Whom he Debussy, called. And Debussy said comparable things against the Bosch. Exactly. All right. So then by World War II, as everybody knows, um, it became a weapon. And it was part of how Hitler used it to bring people together in Germany. So we wanted to get rid of uh, jazz because it was black and it was not our culture, not Aryan. And internally, and that was dangerous, he thought, um, even though the Germans loved jazz, and it, so it became a kind of a public statement as opposed to privately what people were, were listening to on the radio. But also um, what happened was that he wanted to blame in, internal, the internal uh, problem, the enemies inside. So he came up with the idea of Entarte to Kunst, a degenerate art, and then ultimately Entarte to Musik. Now the problem with making music uh, weaponizing or making it a target was that Jews wrote every kind of music. I mean, it wasn't just modern music. It wasn't just, you know, it was operettas. It was beer hall music. It was popular songs. It was everything, right? John, 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 we still do, by the way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> do we? All right. So, so, uh, so that became a real problem. So they had to tell you why 
that operetta was dangerous, but this operetta is good. So, so when the student prints opened uh, by by uh, Zygmunt Romberg, it was Zygmunt Romberg. So yeah. they found out that Romberg was Rosenberg, and that wouldn't work. So, so, so student prints was bad. Mary Widow was good, and it was so. So, if you have three dictators, the big ones, Stalin, Hitler, and Mussolini, whose business it was to control behavior, they wanted to control music. Now, tertiarily comes the Cold War, where every what comes the Cold War, where everything is turned around, where suddenly Russia, which was our ally, first, you know, ally to finish World War II, suddenly became our number one enemy. And they were using culture, their culture, to prove to Europe when they were when they were portraying themselves as European, which is very mm. different from what's happening now, mm. was that they were the land of real culture and America had no culture. And so we started another kind of culture war in which we officially supported um, non-representational art. The avant-garde came roaring back because this was an example of freedom of speech as opposed to the Soviets. All right, so why did I write this book? Uh, from around 1990 on, because the book took 30 years to write, I kept tripping over composers whose names I'd never heard of, one, or two, whose names I had heard of, uh, but was told weren't any good, and then three, repertory by composers whom I had heard of, whose half of whose repertory I never had heard played, like the last music of Schoenberg, which was tonal and challenging, but not 12-tone and really beautiful, or like the symphonies written by Paul Hindemith in America, which were so extraordinarily great that I started to think, why was this music just cut out of the repertory? I want to mention one thing. You conducted the Schoenberg music at the Philharmonic, did you not? Uh, no, I conducted the, the Schoenberg music was, in, in, in Berlin. I recorded it. It was Korngold that I think you did at the Philharmonic, was, am I right? The, the late piece that he, he uh, wrote at the end of his life? No. I do remember. Well, okay, uh, uh, but just to answer the first question, the, the Schoenberg... Yeah. Hollywood album is is Berlin and was okay. there and that was for Decca. It's called right. in Hollywood and it was the the music that I'd never heard of before. Okay, uh, continue. And in the case of Korngold, his music was never played in Los Angeles except for one concert in the 1930s, and I brought his music back to the bowl in the 1990s. Right. And the, and uh, his two sons and uh, his one one of his two sons. And their children of the of the two sons all came to the bowl. Some of them were just like eight years old, and that they heard great grandpa's music for the first time. Um, mm -hmm. But again, Michael, what also astounded me in my life as a conductor was I was conducting, you know, the first first complete recording of an American work by Kurt Weill. I was conducting the country premiere of Street Scene from 1947, and now it's it's the 1990s, and I'm conducting the first production in Italy, the first production in England, the first production in Portugal. Why, why me? I mean, there were some really famous, and still are, much more famous conductors, much more important conductors, who never touched this music, not to mention the conductors who grew up in Los Angeles who never touched film music, and we were all told how terrible this music was, how terrible and uh, and 
uh, how the composers were just people who stole music, did it for the money, wrote, you know, that whole thing. And then, and you, and you couldn't, Michael, you couldn't really check on that if you even cared to. So you have to, first of all, be a little contrarian if some expert says, well, the music isn't any good and it's stolen to say, well, wait a minute, let me just check on that. So you try to look up a biography of Franz Waxman or Dmitry Tiomkin, and you can't find one, right? You have to, there's no, you know, you have to look at autobiographies or things that people say. So I started to realize, because this is the really key moment, 1991, Decca announces Antarctica Musik. I'm one of two conductors on that series. Yep. And the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra is created for me same year in Los Angeles, and I blithely say I'm going to play music written in Los Angeles because I was well aware that the Los Angeles Philharmonic did not play in general music written in Los Angeles. And that's not John, just John for a second, because this is something which is still continuing. Why? Well, uh, as they say, read my book. Um, well, <laughs> no. yeah, it's, well, but here, uh, who's I'll, making the decisions, John? The administrators, the um, of orchestras, you know, they they have to they have to say, why don't we find out who these people are? Why are we not playing that? As a certain amount of anti-Semitism in all symphony orchestras in America at a certain time, that's generally known. I'm not picking on the LA Philharmonic as being any different from the New York Philharmonic or you know the Berlin Philharmonic. We, we went through a time when it was standard practice uh, in many orchestras that people who were Jewish uh, were not on the boards. Um, and so I can't... I can't George, George Gershwin was a Russian-American composer, right? I said, yeah, yeah, that's how he was. He was, he was announced that the, the bowl premiere of, the, of uh, Rhapsody in Blue was next week by the Russian-American George Gershwin. Think about that. And yeah. Russian, Russian was just a euphemism for Jew. Exactly. There's no so, question about it. So um, I started seeing that the names of composers on Hitler's list for the Antarctica Musik series in Berlin included names of composers on the Hollywood list. And here's the thing. Uh, no one ever explained that link to me, ever. And I was already... Well, 1990. So I wasn't a young guy. I'd been in music for years. I taught at Yale for 15 years. I studied there. I went to graduate school there. These names are never even listed as 20th century composers or American composers or anything. They were just those Hollywood composers. And, you know, that started me thinking about why was this and why was the official music of contemporary, so-called reuse of the word contemporary, why was it always this same continuous, non-tonal, so-called, um, I don't know, avant-garde music was the only music? When I knew that the composers we hold dear um, tended not to be those composers. Uh, you know, Michael, you when you studied music, they probably told you, as they told me, that the, the framework for explaining the history of music is if it could be explained. One of the aspects was that it always got more complicated. It evolution, got, evolution, as if we evolution. Or it might even be something called a series of revolutions. So you wanted Bo to. Boulezian nonsense. Well, it was not just Boulez. I mean, he was an example of it and everyone embraced it. Black but and I, white example of it. Yeah. Well, I think, that, I think um, 
I think it had to do with social Darwinism and Hegelism. In other words, these two philosophies, one with Hegel, which is that you take something and you take the opposite of it and they fight and something comes out of it, right? That, that's the Hegel thesis, antithesis, synthesis. In the case of Darwin, it had to do with the idea that everything like humans are better than monkeys or better than whatever it is because we're more complex. So John, whatever it is. John, listen, you're a very smart guy. I know this from decades of being with you, okay? You're a really smart guy, and you've got a very big picture. But do you really think putting tuchuses in seats is what's going through the minds of the administrators in choosing the repertory that they tell the conductors what to do? Do you really think they're thinking of Hegel? Oh, no, I just think that that's part of the way people taught so it's this gestalt that happened, to use the German right. word, yeah, this kind of total it, idea of how to justify why late Verdi is better than early Verdi and why, you know, well, this is the general and it's OK because it kind of works. You know, you can look at Haydn. Well, I explained that Haydn. And then you look at Mozart. Oh, it's in fact, he had studied a little bit and then with Haydn. And now his music is more complicated. And there's Beethoven. And you go, oh, well, that makes sense. And then there's Wagner. But there's a there's a part of that trajectory that stops working. And it stops working when total saturation is achieved around 1912 and 1913. So once you get to dance music, that you can't dance to anymore, right? Because the point of dance music is that it has a continual beat that you can predict. Otherwise you fall on the floor. So you can do and dance and dance, but you can't go okay. So Nijinsky found that to be the problem. I used to I used to joke that uh, <laughs> that Stravinsky had one leg that was shorter than the other, so that's why he, he might have, you know. I don't know, but but wait, so there, there, that's the dance part, but then the music part, the the melody part, song and dance. So by 1912, there's Pierre Lunaire by Schoenberg, and you can't sing it. I mean, it's just it's it's extremely powerful, dramatic singing, screaming, talking. So when you get to the point where all pitches are available to you at the same time as a composer. You know this better than anybody. You're a composer. And you have any kind of rhythmic complexity. You've reached the point where the glass is full. Now, you can find all kinds of different ways of going forward. But at 100%, you can't go past that. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Finish look, up. I will. So look at Strauss. I will. Kind of like the first one to get to this point where at, at the horrific climaxes of Zalame and Electra and Electra, you, you can write, you can put as much notes into a moment as possible. And what does he do after he's gotten that? He Sophia. <laughs> so it's Kanug. And so the rest Kanug. of his life, so he gets to this point and he goes, okay, I did that. Now I can use that in stories, but now right up until his death in the 1940s, his operas become more and more pastel. Look at Stravinsky. He writes The Rite of Spring, 1913. He never writes anything like that again, even though that's his trademark. Never anything as good either. Well, in in my book. 
opinion. I mean, I'm, I, everyone should have an opinion. And I, I like that because I think everybody should have an opinion about music. So if you go to Copeland, if you go to to um, early- stay with Cope, stay with Copeland, please, because I want to talk about someone I knew personally, as you did. I think Aaron's turn in connotations and inscape was a major fault. And after that, he lost his, he, he became, you know, he lost his mind in his, in his late 80s. Yeah. But in the 60s, he had to be au courant. There was a pressure, even on Copeland, a fine, fine, beautiful human being that he was, a great person. And he had to, and he had to write connotations for the opening of Lincoln Center, and Philharmonic Hall, and it's a disaster of a piece. Well, that, you t- like, uh, why? Well, because of the pressure. Thank you. That, that was the only way to write music. I mean, Lenny Leonard Bernstein fought with that his whole life. He did. And argued that his greatest achievement was when he ignored that. When there was right. just enough complexity and genius in West Side Story, yeah. where he was unafraid to write for Broadway, but he wrote for Broadway like no one had ever written for Broadway before. It's unbelievable, right? and it still and stands up. Symphonies, and he gets into some of the the the, the uh, a quiet place, which has got so much great music, and he had to somehow prove to the world that he could be as complex as all the boys, yeah. and that you see, and that's the pressure that robbed us in that sense in the case of copeland and others of of what they might have written so here's the irony of this look at shostakovich um he was going down that path and then stalin and the people said don't ever do that again or you've got a one-way ticket to siberia right is and so if he's just lucky (laughs) and he wrote the fifth symphony and he died in bed after writing 10 more symphonies and we play them um and ironically, this is where the history of music becomes so intriguing. And that's why I say play the music. How many composers of how much music were just thrown away because it didn't fit into the niche of this is the only music that is classical music. It's atonal and it's meant to be that. And if it's not that, don't play it. And that's, that's hard. I mean, that's hard. We lost. We lost. The people lost. We also lost people who were murdered. Well, that goes, yes. That, that should always and be. that is a whole generation yeah. of connection between me and the Schoenberg generation or Ravel and Debussy generation. Yeah. I, never, I never knew Schulhoff. I never knew Ullmann. I never knew Krasa. I never knew Haas. I certainly would have met and known Gideon Klein. I, I didn't know any of them. Right. I had to learn about them in the 90s when I started finding the scores, when I performed music of Ullmann for the first time, his Yiddish lead, in Berlin. They had never been done. We did it from the manuscript. Hmm. Okay, so that's a generation that was killed, murdered by the Nazis, and the Nazis committed a war on music for their own reasons. You and hmm. I are very much in sync about this concept. Hmm. Is Flamen being done anywhere? No. Oh. See, that's the, there's, there's the other part. That's so, Schulhoff's great opera. Why? Well, so because uh, I can't answer that. All I can say is play the music. If I were running an opera house, which I don't, I would say, hello, everybody. I understand you want to do a new production of a standard opera in which Isolde is sitting in a subway train. Um, I, 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 if you want to do that, I don't understand why, but go right ahead. 
but how, and I know you want to commission new operas. We, of course, should do that. But where are all the operas in between? You know, there was recently a, an article in the New York Times about Schwanda, the bagpiper, and about oh, what, what yeah. a wonderful opera. Why don't we have it? Well, why don't you ask that question of the people who run an opera house in America? Why have we never seen uh, Die Harmonie der Welt of, of, of Paul Hindemith, the life of, of Kepler, in which the last scene, all the characters become planets traveling around the sun. And of course, because Hindemith was the genius he was, it's a Pasakalia. And each of the characters <laughs> has the melody that moves at a different speed around a ground base. I mean, so, okay. I mean, you know, it's Star Wars time. And can you imagine a, an opera in which the end of it is a, some, you know, Renaissance uh, uh, glow, I mean, map of the, of the stars, it moves up and you see all these characters. And you know, so, but it has never been played in America. It okay. just took two, two so years. I hear. And you bring this up in your book, which is on Kindle, The War on Music, and it's now a published book. If people want to just have a book from the library, purchase the book. Better for John if you buy it. Now, how do we fight back? Well, I don't I don't agree. I, I love the fact that you point to this. And Norman Lebrecht has did it years ago in his Who Killed Classical Music in a different way. Yeah. And I've been talking about this for years, as you well know. Yeah. So how do we fight back? Well, the book is, 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 is I don't know whether the book is, a, it's not so much a jacuzzi moment, because really, um, we didn't fight World War II. That's our, our father's or in our age or grandfather's war. But we have to understand that using music and, and abusing that it, has robbed us of the of the connectivity. See, ultimately, I think maybe you could make the following argument. Ah, uh, good. Maybe you could make the following argument. The reason that classical music seems to get feel less and less relevant to today is that the gap between the last pieces that we all agree on as classical music peters out in the 1920s and 1930s. Why from, why from 1700? I get the 1700 start point, sort of. But why does it kind of stop in the 20s and 30s? And then why does it then pick up with the latest world premiere? Now, my point here is that there are operas that were written right into the 40s and 50s. I mean, please, you know, you, you've got operas by Nino Rota, I mean, so when you say with a composer who composed Romeo and Juliet, the Godfather, um, he wrote operas. Would we like to hear some of them besides the one comedy that's occasionally done? Yeah. Why do we? Why do we? Well, and again, I address that in the book too because it again has to do with World War II and Mussolini, and how all those living composers who outlived Puccini were part of the fascist period because that's what fascism is. But it's not just the ones who lived in Italy, but those who even escaped. So you have Castelnuovo Tedesco, who was thrown out, who wrote lots of orchestral music that is wonderful that we never play. We never don't, done. Never. And we don't. And he was the teacher of listeners out there. Here, here's a great little simple 
who was Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco, the family, a Jewish family in Spain, thrown out, I believe, in 1493 by Isabella. They go to Italy, where they live in Italy, in Florence. And in 1938, Mario, who's now the living Castelnuovo Tedesco, a composer, is told one day that he's no longer an Italian because he's a Jew. And racial he has, laws, racial laws of Mussolini. Say to his son, I'm sorry, you can't go to school tomorrow. But why, Papa? Because you're not an Italian. He comes to America, goes out to L.A. because of whatever happens. He writes for MGM for a while. But because I guess the Italians were less uh, thorough, shall we say, than the Germans, he managed to keep his money, the money from the family. And he lives in L.A. as a teacher. And who are who are Mario's students? Well, in no order of of, uh, of importance, uh, Henry Mancini, uh, Nelson Riddle, right, right. <laughs> Every other song you ever hear Frank Sinatra sing, Nelson Riddle, um, Ella, a person, a person by the name of Andre Previn, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, and John Williams, and every jazz musician on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So I said to Andre Previn, uh, I got to know him pretty well in the last three years of his life. And I said, so, and I talked to John Williams about this too. What was it like studying with Mario? And he said, oh, well, you know, he was so wonderful. You would, I said, well, did he have a class at USC? Or No, 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 you went to his house and you brought your music and he would correct it and make suggestions. And then his wife would come out with some fig wine and cookies. And I said, did you ever pay him? And he said, no, 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 he wouldn't ever accept a penny. And this man who wrote an overture to every Shakespeare play, I mean, I just said this today at G. Shermer. You guys, you should publish, you know, do a little thing. Mario Casoma, there's a Romeo and Juliet. There's a Midsummer Night's Dream. There's an Antony and Cleopatra. There's a Hamlet. There's a Tempest. There are these wonderful overtures, fantasy overtures by a 20th century composer who was thrown out of, of Europe because his family was Jewish. Um, and was one of the great and most important teachers in the middle of the 20th century. So these are our mentors. And yeah. to, for, to forget them and cast them aside because Mussolini passed racial laws, you yeah. know, the, Finci, the Finci Contini's, here we go. Here we have it with Mario Castanova Tedesco, whose, and, whose music, by the way, I did at the Holocaust Museum as part of our series. Good, good. It's chamber, it's chamber music. Well, you yeah. and I discussed it then. But the, the point of the matter is, I totally agree with you. It's not only playing their music because of the persecution. I, I must be clear. It is to play their music because it's of high quality and very moving and very touching of the human condition in every which way. Yeah, Michael. And my point, however, that I started it, whatever that sentence was that probably went on for two hours. It um, always does with you, but I love you. Continue. Okay, thank you. <laughs> What part I worry about? How about and I love you? <laughs> Never mind. My son once said, "Don't do yes, but but do yes and." <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. You you you've been correcting my English for years, <laughs> including my use of gerunds, quoting yeah. Lenny. Yeah, didn't go, it, that did not go down very well. But continue. Sorry. <laughs> and here's the point. The repertory, the standard repertory, which I says kind of peters out with Bolero, you know, Ravel in the 1920s. And uh, and maybe now now we've allowed Rachmaninoff in. To, so that's the 30s. But really, it becomes a kind of a lo- lonely connectivity is that there's this huge connectivity 
from Ravel and from early Schoenberg or late Schoenberg or whoever you want to talk about and Sibelius and right up to today, because the one place, the one place where the line was not broken was Hollywood. Why? Because once uh. their music got affixed to the soundtrack, you couldn't not hear it anymore. You couldn't erase it anymore. The, and, and I also take uh, exception to the idea that the only avant-garde was the avant-garde that involved very complex musical utterances. There's another avant-garde that attracted young people, which was the technology of film scoring, because you could write specifically for, for synchronized dramatic gesture. You could conduct it yourself. It would therefore be your performance of your music and hundreds of millions of people would hear it. And those, as opposed to a little chamber music society in Vienna, where people paid to sit and sit with a hundred other people to hear your latest piece of music. So in a, in a funny way, you go from Strauss and Mahler and Wagner to today, because that one place where those composers like Rojo, Waxman, Steiner, all of them got to write that music. They didn't write movie music. They just wrote music. And as they lived in America, more and more influences came to them. And they were training by implication the next generation of American-born composers. So that's Jerry Goldsmith, that's Elmer Bernstein, that's that's you know that's uh, Alex North. You go through that list, and it continues today. Please mention Bernard Herrmann. And Bernard Herrmann, I think he says Bernard. He said Benny. Benny. He was born in Brooklyn. When people say mm. Bernard Bernard Herrmann, they go well. Herman. Bernard it was Bernard, Herrmann. It was Benny from Brooklyn. Bernard Hermann. Um, yeah, he was Benny, and he, you know, his brother had a, a, a optometrist shop just a block from where I'm living here, where I'm talking to you in Chelsea. I mean, it was Benny Herman. Okay, so these guys who were trained in our greatest, our greatest conservatories in America, as opposed to Leipzig and, and St. Yeah. Peter, they continued the line. Now, you get someone like Rosenman, who studied with Schoenberg. And he said, you know, this the snobbery against Hollywood was so vast that once he wrote a score for a Hollywood film, you know, he was James Dean's roommate. He was studying with Schoenberg. And as a result, a rebel without a cause has got a score by Leonard Rosenman. And he said with rage that once he wrote a film score, all of his dates um, in New York were canceled. He, because he was now a movie composer. Tan Dunn had that recently with, with Crouching Tiger. You know, once he wrote Crouching Tiger, he was, uh, you know, trafe, marked man. Well, <laughs> I have a lot to say on this subject, by the yeah. way. Listen, you 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 re reinventing it with your Frankenstein. My yeah. Frankenstein score, so people should know, is now in four versions. Yeah, I'm the, the operatic I'm premiere is going to happen at the Los Angeles Opera coming. It is the most popular score of its kind in the world. It has had 60 productions, 6-0, and it is in chamber orchestra, full orchestra, wind ensemble, and a new version for opera with the Latin Requiem Mass as its libretto. Mm -hmm. So when I hear this about Benny Herman of the optometrist brother or <laughs> Castanuovo Tedesco or any of these people who are my heroes, it makes me furious. But I want to talk to you, um, equal person in their 70s as I am, as to 
what we all do. One great thing right now is, and I learned this through the internet and also during this whole COVID nonsense, from which I almost died. As you well know, I was hospitalized. It's not just the concert hall anymore, is it? No. Isn't there something called recorded music? Isn't there yeah. something called Spotify and Apple Music and Prime Music and yeah. other means of getting the music out there? Yes, yeah, play, play the music, John. But if it, if it turns out that the flavor of the week decided by the suits, as it were, as we used to call them in Hollywood, the suits at the, at the, at the theaters uh, or wherever, say, well, this year we have, to, we have to do purple composers or composers who come from Mars versus other composers who can fill seats. I mean, look at John Williams' concerts now. At 90, he's conducting the Vienna Philharmonic in Berlin and Philadelphia. Bless his heart. So, John Williams, one of the most important things to understand about John, besides the fact that he turned 90, which because we believe in the decimal system, it's divisible by 10 and we celebrate him. And quite frankly, I used to say about Pierre Boulez, he should only have been honored every 12th year that he was on the planet since 12 clearly meant a lot more to him than 10. But in any case, <laughs> back, back to our show here. Yes. The reason why now John Williams is now welcome to the Berlin Philharmonic and the Vienna Philharmonic is that the players, the players have grown up in the world after 1977. Correct. Correct. And they heard Star Wars, the Star Wars world before they heard Beethoven in their houses. And don't kid yourself. One of the reasons why you want to play French horn or viola or clarinet was because you heard John's music. So this wasn't necessarily some brilliant moment on the part of the artistic administrators. It became something where the orchestra, the Vorstand, the actual guys, they're usually guys in orchestra who say, yeah, we can play that repertory because we want to. Now, here's the next step, John. Go for it. The next step is don't do a concert of John Williams music conducted by John Williams. But John, why don't you put your music next to Korngold, next to Strauss? Show that it's continuity. It's not a separate ghetto music where I'm playing only movie music and I'm only playing my movie music. I get that. That's the easiest thing in the world, an all Beethoven concert. But you know that when you hang three paintings next to each other, they start to make a dialogue that gives you some sense of continuity. And there's my thesis. We're looking for continuity. We're looking for getting to today from 100 years ago. And it's not a journey of the avant-garde that never ends. That was a moment. That was, a, that was stuff you use in your music because you can. But that's just one of the arrows in the quiver, right? That's, the, that's part of what... If you, I have to, if I need an aleatoric section, sure, I uh, use it. But I use it to be me. I don't use it so that I get a position as full professor in a university. I don't do that. I right. never have. And by the but, way, the universities don't necessarily require that anymore. But still, the outcome... They did. They did. Oh, you know. God. You're talking to me. I taught at Yale for 15 years, right? You I know, know better than anybody. Well, I, I know that I was writing music that was so pleasing to that thing. And then I realized this isn't me. I can't do this. And that's one of the reasons I became a conductor, because mm -hmm. there was so much music to, that that needed to be championed. No one needed me to be another voice out there. Correct. I needed to climb into music needs translators. The only way you can get from here to there is for people to hear the music. 
I do want to mention something which I think to go back to how, again, it's not revenge, but it, I don't want to call it revenge. I want to call it creativity and constructive activity. I do believe that your comment for, for example, our wonderful friend John Williams, what he's just been doing, by the way, is he doesn't just do Star Wars and E.T. at these concerts. He mixes them up with his concerti, often his violent concerti, because he wants his, quote, straight music to be done uh, as well, which it hasn't been done, interestingly enough. But he gets it recorded. I think the lesson has to be to the decision makers in the artistic administrations all over the world that there is music that should be played because it will fill seats because it's of high quality. Yeah. And isn't the quality quotient the ball game? Not necessarily its derivation or some political view. There's no war on the music there should be no war on the music. The music should be committing the war. Well, I'm, I, that's why I said that we should be children of peace. You know, we're, we're the baby boomers. I'm the avant-garde of the baby boomers because I was born in 45. So I'm theoretically... Yeah, I'm, a, I'm six years later. Yeah, you're, you're a kid. So, but here's the thing. Most of us were conceived at a time when the world, when there was this feeling that it was going to be over and the world was going to be better. And that... Right. But when baby boomers... You're basically only saying that we are this gigantic glut in civilization, the numbers of people moving inexorably to our finale ultimo. But so we're not just baby boomers. We're the children of peace with a certain notable exception, which is a footnote, which is a disastrous footnote about the the Russian soldiers um, and they were doing. But let's just say this. So while I understand that Pierre Boulez and Stockhausen were children of the rubble, I mean, they were born into an unspeakable world. When you yeah. think of Stockhausen, in, in, that's why I have a picture in the book, The War on Music, of what what Cologne looked like when he was a teenager. There was nothing. Karl Heinz was a fractured meshuggah of major proportions. And having a harem in his house, he was crazy. He's not a person that I would ever like to go to near again. Pierre, I knew very, very well. And he was also a very damaged soul, very. And, it, so and they felt is, that their music could eradicate a lot of things yeah, that well, they had the seen. Is why did everybody take them as the official spokespeople, musically, and in case of Pierre, a repertory and how to perform? Why were, why were they given that power? Well, some of that, which enrages, I'm sure, people in, in reading my book, has to do with the Cold War, because we, America, had to uh, embrace the angry intellectuals left in the rubble to rebuild Western Europe so that they didn't become communists. Remember, the first election of a new constitution in Western Europe was in Italy, and there was the real possibility that Italy would go to the communists. And that's Mm -hmm. when um, the Dulles brothers and and Eisenhower, they all realized that the propaganda was the only way to win a war without fighting a bullet. And some of that had to do with the creation of uh, an organization that used the arts so Nabokov, wonderful, interesting man, was creating these arts festivals in post-World War II Europe that was celebrating America, but also celebrating this idea that 
with freedom of speech, you could write what you wanted. So suddenly Jackson Pollock became our greatest artist, non-representational art, which confronted the Soviet view that an apple should look like an apple and symphony should generally end in E-flat major if possible. It wasn't so simplistic in the sense that, oh, all, all symphonies should be simple and easy because Shostakovich from the fifth symphony onward, that's pretty complicated. But if you actually listen to the fifth symphony of Shostakovich, most of it is pretty bleak until he figures out a way to give the bastards what they wanted and give himself what he wanted, which is to survive. And so it's a multiple triumph from Dmitry Shostakovich. I want our listeners and viewers to remember one thing that's important because I've been reading some of the social commentary about you and about the book. And if I may defend the thesis and also my buddy, you do not criticize the music of anybody. I mean, you talk about Intolerance coming out at the same year as Lenny's West Side Story. Which one do we remember? Intolerance of the Italian right. uh, 12-tone composer. But you don't say Intolerance is a piece of garbage. You don't no. say the techniques used by Boulez or Stockhausen is garbage technique. You don't do that ever. No. My, my point That's is important to no. remember. If you misread the book, then that's because it you... has been misread by many who haven't even read it. No, it's fine. You are being attacked for being an apologist for simplicity and a certain kind of, you know, uh, looking back that film music was the height of all music in America. You never, say... you never say these things. No, and I want just... to correct the record. Yeah, well, you can answer them if you wish, and I can tell you, I can tell you this. My ultimate point is that if you like it love it. That's as simple as that. It's what I've said. When you find the music you love, have it for lunch, paint your house with it. I'm not, you know, if you, and I go out of my way to talk about Pierre Berlez's music, you will probably find it distant and a little opaque, um, but maybe you love it for that reason. Same thing with Stockhausen. You, you know, I produced Hymnen on the cross campus of Yale University by Stockhausen. I mean, I'm not like, I, I, and actually, I enjoy, I enjoy. You don't need to, I understand that. And again, you don't need to say any of these things. But what I want to make very clear is that it is who we are and what we create out of who we are. Like Leonard did, Lenny did with Westside, with those geniuses in the room smoking like crazy. <laughs> I mean, my God arguing, you know, and Jerome Robbins saying to him, that's piece of shit, go home and do something good, you know, and let it go, ah! You know? I mean, this, these things actually happen. Yeah. The point of the matter is, Westside comes out of who he was. Yeah. It, and it's true of Robbins, it's true of Stephen, and, and Arthur. It's very true of those four at that time. Mm -hmm. It's true of all of these guys and gals. The point of the matter is you've always been true to yourself, and that's what I've always loved about you. People find you very acerbic sometimes and difficult to take because you often are a truth seeker. You are, a, you are very much a, a, a zondic in my, in my book, and, it's, and, a, and a tzaddik. I should say it's tzaddik. Tzaddik's the one who holds the legs at the, at the breasts. You do that too, but you're more a tzaddik. You are a holy person. You don't even know it. No, and I, 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 I'm, I'm letting that fly over my head because I, I can't even respond to that. I, I think <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, my dear Shapiro, is that yes, the ultimate 
proof of the validity of music is one, what it sounds like, not how you composed it, because that might be fun, but it's only fun if you want to, you know, look at it. But the resultant is what we're hearing. And two, whether you like it or not. Full stop. Full stop. And thank you, because I like you. <laughs> and I've been your friend for over two and a half decades, or whatever it is. John Malcheri, great author. With his greatest book in my book, <laughs> The War on Music, just out now, and a great conductor whose concerts I have attended for many years with great joy and elucidation. Okay, Thank man. you, sir, for joining me on Interplay. It's a privilege to be with you. Bye now. This, this is Michael Shapiro on Interplay, Conversations in Music. Thank you for joining us.